Well, why don't you take your Bibles this morning, open them to 2 Peter chapter 3, very near the end of the Bible, almost there. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll be finishing this morning like I mentioned. And as you're turning, let me tell you about a new movement spreading around the country these days, rising in popularity with every passing year and every passing disaster, and that would be doomsday preparation. In the past, anyone who stockpiled 10 years of food and built a survival bunker was mocked as a crazy person. But more and more, people are now thinking it's not such a bad idea. As the world seemingly spirals more and more out of control, more people find themselves becoming what's called doomsday preppers. Doomsday preppers describes essentially a new class of people known for going to great lengths to prepare for the end. For many, getting ready for the collapse of society has become their obsession. And there are many future fears that motivate this behavior. A number of natural disasters could strike at any moment, causing society to panic. From tsunamis to earthquakes to floods to hurricanes, preppers aim to be prepared for it all. Or more far-fetched, but still within the realm of reality, the Earth's magnetic field could reverse or massive solar flares could hit the Earth, causing widespread destruction to electronics and modern life as we know it. Whatever the case, preppers just aim to be prepared for what could happen. In addition, there are also the not-so-natural disasters like nuclear war, chemical war, conventional war. But preppers fear more so the effects on society these disasters would have. They expect a shortage of food and water and fuel and electricity. World economies will tumble. Most of the population will lose access to food and water. And anarchy will result. But they'll be prepared. That is their aim, to be prepared. And I have to say, though, it's not terribly hard to imagine the fall of society given a widespread global disaster. I mean, just think back to some recent localized disasters, and they really are quite disruptive. Think back to Hurricane Katrina. And the city of New Orleans was completely crippled. Normal life, totally shut down. People were truly on their own. It took the entire nation coming together to send them aid. And still, food and water and shelter were hard to come by. And so just imagine if if ten cities all were struck with some massive disaster at the same time. It would be a breaking point. No aid would come. And if food and water supply chains were affected, I can see chaos setting in. And so it's for this reason that preppers do what they do. They stockpile their food and water. They learn to be self-sufficient. They arm themselves just in case. And then they start to build. The really serious preppers build structures to ensure their survival. During the Cold War in the 1960s, the threat of nuclear war was high. And you can duck and cover all you want. But it's not going to protect you from a nuclear blast. So the government started to authorize these community fallout shelters. And soon people started to build their own private fallout shelters. However, the threat of nuclear war passed. And most of these fallout shelters were abandoned. But not anymore. More and more people are repurposing old fallout shelters or building new ones to help them survive whatever new calamity might come our way. Seems like a lot of this is going on in Kansas. 
one man in Kansas purchased an old military missile silo and he's converting it into doomsday condos. 55 condos are being built inside the actual missile shaft, 14 stories deep. And if you're rich, you can buy an entire floor for just $2 million. But there's really nothing in comparison to Vivos, promoted as the ultimate survival shelter and resort. Vivos is also an abandoned underground government facility in Kansas, but it's much larger In fact, underneath a limestone mountain, Vivos has the same square footage of usable space as the Empire State Building. That's 2 million square feet. It's designed to house 5,000 people through the end of the world with luxury and style. It has miles of underground roads, and residents can literally drive their RV right inside to their private living quarters. Protected from all outside threats, residents can still enjoy all the amenities of a five-star resort. There's underground golf, archery, rock climbing, a gym, a bowling alley, a spa, pools, even a water slide. There's a bakery, several dining areas, a bar, a dance floor, a wine cellar, a theater, a medical and dental clinic, library rooms, classrooms, computer rooms, worship rooms, and not to mention the dog and cat park. In all, Vivos is a true fortress advertised as a modern-day ark. And their boast is total protection from anything mankind or nature can send our way. Makes you wonder, though, can they protect us from what God might send our way? And their answer is yes. In fact, on their website, believe it or not, they actually talk about prophecy, among other things, as one of the reasons you should buy your place in vivos. They say this, quote, We have all heard the prophecies of the end times. The Bible warns of it. Vivos is your solution to ride out these catastrophes, so you may survive to be a part of the next Genesis. End quote. And here's where they get things a little bit wrong. <laughs> it is true, the Bible does talk about end times. But I don't think these people have actually read the Bible or read the prophecies. Because one thing is crystal clear. There is no surviving the end. No bunker will shield you from the time when God's wrath is poured out on the earth. You can dig down into limestone as far as you want. For God, all he has to do is send the smallest of earthquakes and you're you're crushed. And for God, to move a mountain is, is nothing. And when the end comes, that actually will be nothing. It will be far worse. This last age before the return of Christ and his kingdom will culminate in a time known as the tribulation. This is a seven-year period where God's wrath is poured out on earth. And the level of destruction in that time is truly unimaginable. We cannot even fully grasp at this point what it will really be like. But just try and picture as Revelation chapter 8 describes. Just picture this. One third of the earth is destroyed in fire. Everything living is dead. One third of the oceans are destroyed. How? We don't know. But everything living in them also dies. And one third of all the clean water sources are also spoiled and destroyed. Anyone who drinks from them dies. So in total, a third of the earth is just, is just gone. And that's, that's just the beginning. It gets worse than that. 
God's wrath continues. The catastrophes continue. And all the while, those who live through this time, they, they never repent. Time and time again, God judges the world, preparing for a once and for all final judgment. But those alive, instead of humbling themselves over their sin and, and crying out to God for mercy, they curse God and they blaspheme even as they suffer. As the angels declare, their judgment is just. The tribulation period itself culminates with the return of Christ. All unbelievers left alive, they gather together to fight against the Lord, but they are slaughtered in an instant. And I'm just saying, when this, when this all happens, when this time comes, no underground bunker is going to save you. When Christ returns, not as Savior, but as judge, there's no hiding place. There's no safe place to go. There's nowhere to go to escape his notice. Everyone will be separated, the sheep from the goats. And if the makers of Vivos were serious, if they really believed all the prophecies of the end, then they wouldn't spend their time trying to sell people a bunker to try and ride out the storm because there's no riding it out. Rather, they would repent now, believe in Christ now, and be saved for that is the only way to escape the wrath of God to come. Indeed, Christ himself, when he came to earth the first time, he came to, to bear the wrath of God on the cross so that we might escape that wrath in eternity. But all who reject him reject their only shield from eternal harm. And doomsday preppers, they're on the right track when they believe that the end is coming. They're on the right track when they believe that you need to be prepared. It's just that there's only one real preparation for the end. And that is to turn to Christ as Lord and Savior. For those of us in the church, we, we've done that. We have placed our trust in the Lord and we are saved from the wrath to come. But that doesn't mean we just sit around and wait. There's work for us to do. God wants us to live rightly in light of the end. He wants us to be doomsday preppers in a sense. Only he doesn't want us building underground bunkers to try and ride out the end. Rather, he wants us living holy and God-honoring lives. God has saved us. He's destined us for heaven. And he wants us right now to live as heavenly citizens, even though we are still on earth. God wants us living rightly in light of the end. And this is largely the thrust of Second Peter. This morning we're finishing up the book of the Bible known as Second Peter. And for the better part of five months, we've been making our way through this book verse by verse by verse. And today we're going to finish up. Before Second Peter, if you were here, you know we went through First Peter. And so now that we're all done, hopefully you can see some of the similarities, but also differences between these two letters. First Peter is all about right living in light of suffering, while Second Peter is all about right living in light of the end. And we're going to see that this morning. Not long after penning First Peter, 
Peter writes this second letter because this new internal threat to the church has emerged, which is false teachers. We've seen this many weeks now. Some people were starting to teach within the church that there was no final judgment, that no end would come, and that you can just go ahead and indulge in the lust of your flesh as much as you want without concern. They confessed Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. And Peter writes to expose and condemn these false teachers while reminding the faithful of the truth. Instead of denying the end to justify their ungodly lives, believers should anticipate the end. And in fact, that justifies their godly lives. And we find this emphasis now as Peter closes this short second letter. Last week, we learned how the end is certain. It will come. None will escape. And all of the ungodly will be judged. But this is not something for us to fear. For we have passed out of judgment and into life. But nevertheless, the end should still affect how we live. And how we are going to come to find this morning. Let's go ahead and read together this final passage from Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. Let's read these now. First, uh, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Well, in these five final verses, there are actually four main verbs, these four imperatives or commands for the church that he gives. And so we're going to use these four closing commands to organize our time as we make our way through these final verses so from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, let us go ahead and find four final exhortations for right living in light of the end. Four final exhortations for right living in light of the end. And the first is this, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness from verse 14. Look again at verse 14 with me. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. Whenever you read in the Bible and you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what is the therefore there for? What's it doing there? And it's building a transition. Peter is building off of what he said previously 
And so it'd be a good idea for us to actually start off by going backward and seeing what he just was talking about that he's now drawing a conclusion from. In case you weren't here last week, look back at verse 7 just to be refreshed as to where Peter was coming coming from. He says in verse 7, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. And look at verse 10. He continues, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, you see, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So what's he saying? This world is going to end. Christ will return. There will be a judgment. And we who are in Christ, we've escaped that judgment. But the end is still relevant to us. How? Well, he said it back in verse 11 through this kind of rhetorical question. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And as you can tell, this isn't so much a question as an admonition. And the answer is obvious. And in case you just don't get it, he says it again in verse 14 here. And now it comes as a command. Just straight up telling you how to live. He says, verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. We're looking for what? For a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And since that's how we're looking, that's how we should be living. Now, let's not be mistaken. We're not perfectly righteous. In this life, we, we know we are not without sin. But that is our pursuit now that we follow the righteous Lord. And that is why Peter exhorts us to be diligent in this regard. Peter knows, as we do, that we're still sinners and that we fall short. But being righteous is something to be pursued in this life. It is to be our pursuit now. And diligence is required to do this. Diligence is required to have this heavenly mindset and to live for the Lord and not for the world. Robert Jaffray is a man born in Toronto, Canada in 1873. You probably never have heard of him. But growing up, he had everything because his father owned the Toronto Globe newspaper. And he was the heir. So he was destined to inherit it all, become filthy rich himself and successful. But discerning the call of God, Robert left it all behind 
to become a missionary to China. He left all earthly comforts and literal riches behind to serve the Lord. And that is because Robert had a heavenly mindset. He knew that he was to, to work hard while he was on earth to serve the Lord, but also that this earth wasn't his home. And in that sense, we're all foreign missionaries on earth, aren't we? And for 50 years, Robert served as a missionary to China, up until 1942, when the Japanese invaded the small island he was serving on. And Robert, his wife, and his daughter were all sent to internment camps. And for the next three years, he would suffer the worst living conditions you can imagine. And eventually, he succumbed to sickness and disease, and he died just two weeks before the war ended. But before he died, he exhorted his fellow workers, and he said this, quote, Let us keep our eyes steadily upon the goal. For when we hear the shout from the skies, all else will fade into utter nothingness. For the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. End quote. Robert spent all of this life for the Lord. Some would say he just wasted his life for the Lord. And he did so because he longed to be with the Lord in the next life forever. Listen to this. One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 and 10 says this. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, meaning dead or alive, to be pleasing to him. That's our ambition in this life and the next, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. When you make that your ambition in life, it is your pursuit to live for the Lord and to hope for the Lord, it purifies you. It drives you toward right living. In fact, another favorite verse you're in first, or you're in Second Peter chapter three right now. Just turn the page, right, to First John chapter two. I mean, you're already right there. First John chapter two, and look at verse twenty-eight. Notice how similar this is. First John chapter two, verse twenty-eight. He says, "Now, little children, abide in Him." So that when he appears, talking about Christ, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are for this reason. The world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, just like Peter says, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared as what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Now verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him does what? 
purifies himself just as he is pure. The return of Christ, hoping in seeing the Lord. It is what we call a purifying hope. He is righteous. He has made you positionally righteous. And now it is your goal and desire to live righteously as you long to be with him. And Peter, you can turn back the page now to Second Peter. He says largely the same thing. To diligently pursue purity or holiness. To live spotless and blameless. That's the standard because Christ is the standard. And he was spotless and blameless. And notice here what, what a complete contrast to the false teachers. Back in chapter 2, verse 13 of Second Peter, how, how are they described? The exact opposite. They were stains and blemishes, Peter said. Now, far from being spotless and blameless, their lives were marked by sin and ungodliness. But for those who know the Lord, your desire is to be like him. And that means being driven to remove all the stains of sin in your life. So I ask you, are you doing this? Are you living a holy life in light of the end? And where are your thoughts? Do they ever turn heavenward? Do you find yourself thinking of of the age to come and letting that move you and push you to live rightly in the age right now? Does it excite you to know that you will be with the Lord forever? Or do you find yourself, you just don't really care that much, never really think about it? It's not wrong to enjoy this life. Don't get me wrong, but for the saints, just remember, we don't belong here. This isn't our home. We are, as he said in 1 Peter, aliens, strangers, exiles in this life. So don't get caught up with the place. It's all going to be destroyed anyway. Instead, get excited about the things of the Lord. As Peter said in the previous passage, everything in this world will burn. Everything. Everything will be destroyed, and after that comes the judgment. And those who live for the things of the world, those who do not know and do not follow the Lord, they're going to share in that destruction, and in that judgment. Again, another passage from 1 John is so fitting here. If you like, you can go back to chapter 2, verse 15 now. 1 John 2, 15. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And what a contrast. Living for the world is just foolish. It would be like traveling back to 1929 and investing all your money in the stock market. It's going to crash. Or traveling back to 1912 and booking a a ticket on the Titanic. It's going down. And so is the world. It's time to cash out. Now, you know, this doesn't mean you go off and find a monastery in the desert and spend all your time meditating. 
but rather as Jesus prayed, you stay in the world, but you do not become a part of the world. In the world, not of the world. If you live for this world or the things of this world, you will never have peace, not in this life or the next. That's because everything in this world fails and fades and it will never give you the satisfaction you desire. Be it for money or your career, health, pleasure, entertainment, vacations, hobbies, even family. Nothing in this world lasts. Nothing ultimately satisfies, especially not your sin. And if you find yourself going through life living for stuff, living for the world, even living for your sin, and you will certainly know no peace in the end when you are separated from God forever. For us, though, for us who confess Christ as Lord and Savior and follow him, we are granted peace and we are called to peace both in this life and the life to come. There's peace in this life knowing that whatever comes our way, Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And it's a peace even in death, knowing that even if we die, we're safe in the arms of God, as Romans 5.1 says, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus our Lord. We are free from worry in life and in death, but this doesn't mean we sit around and do nothing. All the more so because the Lord has saved you Pursue him and pursue holiness. Lift your eyes to heaven. See your future home in which righteousness dwells and pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Number two. The second exhortation now in this closing passage from from 2 Peter. First, pursue holiness. Secondly, number two now, heed scripture. Secondly, heed scripture from verses 15 and 16. Let's look there again. Verse 15, he says, Now, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. The second essential exhortation for right living in light of the end is to heed scripture, specifically what scripture says in regards to the end. Now we're going to spend all of our time rehashing what we covered back in chapter 3, verses 3 through 7 of Second Peter. But Basically, he mentioned the false teachers went wrong where? They went wrong in rejecting the word of God. They purposely ignored the scriptures and everything they say about the coming judgment because it's really hard to enjoy your life of sin when you've got that voice in the back of your head nagging you. And they had to do something about the nagging voice of God from scripture. But for those who know God and love his word, you know that his word brings life and blessing and you want to be guided by it. You want to live by it. 
And in this context, therefore, you also want to heed God's word on the end. Instead of ignoring everything God says so that you can live how you want to, you are to heed what God says so that you can live how he wants you to. Along these lines, Peter reiterates much of what he said back in verse 9. Here now in verse 15, he says, In regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. It's so essential to have a right view of the end and a right view of the delay of the end, as we learned last week. God is just. God is perfectly just. And all sin against him must be accounted for. And all sinners must be made accountable. But God is also patient. He does not instantly pour out his wrath, which he should, if you are being only just, he should. But his patience delays his wrath, giving sinners a time to repent, believe, and be saved. God stores up his wrath, though, like a volcano, just waiting to explode. Now, there is time, though, to flee from the wrath to come, but that the pressure is building. The steam is building. The volcano will explode. And when it comes, no person can escape, and no person can say that they didn't have time to flee. Right. Knowing this, though, that God's patience won't last forever should really spur you on to evangelism. The offer of salvation is only good in this life. Think of all the people you know who reject the Lord or who do not follow the Lord. Friends, relatives, co-workers, neighbors. They will all perish unless they turn. And they have a chance. There is a time. That time is right now. And so are you sharing the gospel with them? And we know we don't have the power to save anyone. And we know that not all will believe. But our mission doesn't change. And that is to share with everyone both the warning and the good news. Be warned. A day will come when you must pay back your sin debt to God. And it will take you eternity to do so. But also be glad. Because the good news is that Jesus came and on the cross, he paid that sin debt for you Amen. that you might be forgiven if you can turn from your sins and turn to him. So are you telling people this? Are you warning them? Are you telling them the good news? And think of all those you know who are perishing. When was the last time you shared with them? Have you ever shared with them? And what is your excuse? Time is running out. There is time. God is patient, but not forever. Of course, trust God to do his part in salvation. We know that. But our part doesn't change, and that is to be spurred on to evangelism. Now, back in Second Peter, continuing with verse 15, everything Peter has been saying has been said by Paul because the two apostles teach the same truth from the same source. He brings up Paul. He says, In regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. 
Now you might wonder, why is Peter bringing up Paul at all here? And that is because these false teachers that Peter has been laboring against, they were distorting Paul's writings to support their false views. But this doesn't fly, because Peter and Paul say the same thing, giving God's consistent truth for the churches. One can't imagine how much of Paul's eschatology or teaching on end times the false teachers would have distorted from what he says about the rapture of the church to the man of sin to the return of Christ. But we know for sure that the false teachers distorted Paul's teaching on justification. They took it to mean that once a person was justified or or made right with God, that they could sin as much as they wanted without recourse. In fact, the more you sin, the better because God's grace gets put on display. But this is a very false implication of the gospel as Paul himself refuted in Romans chapter 6. Admittedly, Peter says, some of Paul's sayings are hard to understand. This word in the Greek for hard to understand refers to things that can be ambiguous or capable of multiple interpretations. And that is most certainly the case with some portions of Scripture. And surely the false teachers took advantage of this fact, declaring their own interpretations to be true. But Peter says they're not to be trusted for they're untaught and unstable. And far from rightly dividing the word of truth, they distort it. This word for distort was used of ancient torture devices. It's where they would wrench or rack someone's body on the rack. That's what the false teachers do to Paul and to all of Scripture. They, they twist it. They distort it. They wrench it from its context. They make it say what they want it to say. This happened in Peter's day. It's no surprise that it still happens in our day. Overall, though, what Peter says here about Paul is extremely significant when it comes to the doctrine of the Bible itself. And first, we learn that Paul's letters, they were well known and circulated around at a very early date. If we're safe in assuming that Peter writes his second letter to the same person, or the, to the same churches he wrote his first letter to, then by this time, these churches would have already received from Paul, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. We already know that the New Testament writings were quickly circulated around the churches, and this only confirms that fact. But even more significantly, here we have the clearest evidence showing how the church from the very beginning viewed the writings of the apostles as scripture. I mean, look, Peter himself, he's taking Paul's letters and putting them on par with the established Old Testament scriptures. He's calling Paul scripture. Really, though, this is not a surprise because Paul and all the other apostles were speaking as Christ's representatives. And it was known that the scriptures, God's word, was being expanded. A new testament was needed for life under a new covenant. Still, though, this is a key verse to study well, if you're trying to learn what the Bible says about itself. They're really a key verse. But for our purposes today, the lesson comes 
in how one regards Scripture as a whole. Whether written by Peter or Paul or John or whoever, it doesn't matter. It's all coming from God. So to neglect it as the false teachers did, or worse, to distort it as they also did, is only to invite destruction upon yourself, as he says in verse 16. Why? Because only in God's truth is that warning found that we just talked about, and the good news. And if you, if you neglect that, or if you, worse, change that, you are casting off your only hope of life. That'd be like someone lost at sea, puncturing a hole in their own life raft. Or someone skydiving, cutting their own parachute cord. You are forsaking, even destroying, the only thing that can save you. And so it is with the false teachers who deny and distort God's truth. And do not follow them on this path of destruction. Instead, heed God's word. Especially as the days draw near, live in light of the word. It's a lamp to shine your path. It is a compass to guide your way. It's a shield to protect your journey. So value, treasure, and heed God's word. The second exhortation Peter gives. Thirdly now, number three, the third of his final Exhortations for right living in light of the end. Number three, beware error. Beware error. This time from verse 17. Look at verse 17. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. In these final two verses, Peter really drives home, honestly, what he's been hammering the entire letter. And this last time, he reminds us to beware of error. There's really no excuse. If you get led astray by false teaching, you can't say that you weren't warned. He has told you many times, and here, plain and clear, that some people, they're going to distort the word. They're going to twist it to fit their own agenda, to lead you astray. It's happened all throughout church history. So if you fall for this, well, at least you can't say that you weren't warned. And do you know what a riptide is? You probably do, or really it's, it's a rip current. It's where too much water gets pushed toward the shore. And so some of the water forms a channel that goes back out to sea. And if you get caught in one of these rip currents, it'll take you right out to sea. And at times, it can move as fast as eight feet per second. That is way faster than any human can swim. So they're dangerous. And these currents are so dangerous that when they're they're detected, lifeguards, they put up warnings, right? Rip tide, rip current warnings. They warn people beforehand so that they are not unaware and swept away. And look, it's one thing if you're swimming in the water and you get caught in a riptide, taken out to sea, and you didn't know better, no one warned you, well, that's one thing. It's another thing, though, if you've been warned and you still go in the water and you still get swept away. You have no excuse. Likewise, false teachers roam the church 
looking to lead people astray. And if you get caught up with them, you'll be swept out to sea. You will be lost. But you've been warned. So be on guard and beware error. Now, if you feel like you've heard this from Peter before, you have many times actually. Over and over in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, we see him telling the churches all the time to just watch out for error, to be on guard, to be steadfast in the faith. He just keeps hammering this drum over and over again. And why, why does he keep bringing this up? It's because of all people, Peter knows just how important it is to be steadfast. For Peter, this is personal. This is personal. You remember the story. We've told it many times. But on the night of his death, Jesus told his disciples what was going to happen to him in regards to his crucifixion. He told the disciples also that they all would flee away from him in fear. And Peter, Peter is the one who boldly confesses, Lord, I will never deny you. But he would three times. And Jesus tells him this. But he also tells Peter that his faith will not fail. Remember? Jesus knows that although Peter will stumble, he will not fall away. In fact, he will be restored after the fact. And when that time comes, Jesus commands Peter in Luke 22:32, And Jesus tells him, after being restored, go and strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. All of this comes to pass. When Peter denied Jesus, it really broke him. It humbled him more than any. I mean, here he thought he was the best disciple, the most faithful disciple, the strongest disciple. But he fell. And so after the resurrection, when Peter was restored, he really made his mission to never fall again and to be steadfast and to take seriously what Jesus told him and to strengthen his brothers so that none of them may fall as well. And this is what we find Peter doing all over in 1 Peter and 2 Peter. He's just trying to strengthen his brothers and sisters in the church. In fact, you see that word for steadfastness in verse 17? In the Greek, it comes from the same root as the word for strengthen which Jesus commanded him some 30 years before. So this is it. Listen to Peter's ancient words and beware error. Some of you may think, oh, you're, you're so mature, you're, you're too advanced, you're too strong to fall, you're, you're not going to fall prey to some false teacher, you're good to go. So is Peter. Here's a man who knows what it's like to stumble, so learn from him to always be on guard, always be watching, always beware error creeping into your life. And can I say to add to that, always be growing? Because that's your surest way to keep from stumbling. It's like with a tree. If you buy a brand new small tree, the best thing the tree can do to keep from falling over in the wind is just to grow. Just get big. Send down the roots. And it's the same with us. The more you grow, the more steadfast you will be. And along these lines, really, we come to the fourth and final exhortation for right living in light of the end. 
Along these lines, number four from verse 18, cultivate Christ-likeness. His final word, cultivate Christ-likeness. Let's see verse 18 now. But, he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. We see Peter here ending his letter, really in the same way that he began his letter. He started off talking about how we have received everything we need for life and for godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. I mean, you can do this on your own, but just go to the first three verses of First Peter, or rather Second Peter, and the last two verses, and they're so similar. And he says, not only has God saved us, but he has given us everything we need to live a godly life. Remember that from chapter 1, verse 3? If you're ever in doubt, just know, this is God's chief will for your life, that you would cultivate Christ-likeness, that you would continually grow into the image of the Savior. That is God's purpose for your life now. The grace to grow has already been granted. It's there. You have it. It is now yours to apply it. And that is how you are to grow. And the key to unlocking this growth is knowledge, this true knowledge of the Lord. But we're not talking this head knowledge as we've seen several times throughout First and Second Peter. This distinction we made back in chapter 1, we're not talking about knowing about Jesus. We're talking about knowing Jesus. It's not about knowing that he is Lord and Savior. It's about knowing that he is your Lord and your Savior. The difference is this personal relationship with the Lord where you know him, you follow him, you strive to be like him. That is a saving faith. If you live driven not by the world and the things of the world, but you're driven by the Lord and the things of the Lord, you're going to grow. You will grow. And in growing, you will be steadfast in the faith. It has been said that the Christian life is like riding a bicycle. Unless you keep pedaling, you fall off. And so press on. It's true. Keep running the race. Some of you here, you might be weary. Would you feel tired? Is life just hard? The Christian life is a struggle. It just keeps going on. But it's just, life is hard. Life is difficult. We've got to keep pedaling, though. Take comfort. The Lord is with you and he's already given you his grace and his strength to press on. So just press on. Take comfort in the Lord. Keep that eye heavenward and keep moving. For others though, you might feel strong. You might say, I'm doing really well. Things are good. I feel pretty strong in the Lord. And if that's so, well good. But like Paul said to the Thessalonians, excel still more. Because you're not done. Until you reach the summit, you're not done. And that's not going to happen in this life. So keep striving and reaching. And after all, this is how we bring glory to God. And that's the whole point. And that's Peter's final words. He ends by saying, To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. 
Notice, by the way, when he says this, he's still referring to Christ when he says, to him be the glory. So in no uncertain terms, Peter is worshiping and giving glory to Jesus as he would to God. But this is only right, for Christ is God, he is Son, he is Lord, he is Savior. In all things, we want to remember and honor and worship our Savior. We long when we are going to be with him and give him glory in the day of eternity. And our aim is to do that now. Live for the Lord now as we long to live for him forever. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, indeed, hallowed be your name. You are the Lord and God of heaven and earth. And you are coming back. Savior, we, we long for the day when you do return. And we confess we are, we are tired on this earth. We, we know we don't belong here. You have redeemed us. You've changed us. You've shown us the world for what it is. And this is not our home. No, we belong with you, all by your grace, all by your salvation. We praise you for this. And we pray now that you just continue to strengthen and establish us in your truth that we might remain steadfast in this life. We all have a race to run those who know you. Help us to run the race well. With endurance, keep our eye fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Christ, who will come back for us. He comes for us as Savior. We get to be with him forever. For any who might not know you, Lord, Christ is coming back for them as well. But as judge, I pray for them that they repent, that they do not waste their few days on earth, but rather turn from their sin, turn toward the Savior and and be saved. And know the joy and the peace that comes from that, the blessedness that comes from living for you now and the internal blessedness to follow. So in all things, we we say thank you and we bless your name. We thank you for this this precious time through First and Second Peter. And really we end and say to you, be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.